All right, so we're beginning the membership class. In the membership class, uh, we have, this is not a public assembly, because it's not obligatory for people to be here. So that means women and children, as well as the men can speak. So anybody who wants to stay, you can stay, you can ask questions, you can make comments. Okay, so you need four things, because why not? You need the Shorter Catechism. You need the Church Covenant and the Baptismal Covenant. So that'd be like the Church Covenant for people who are becoming communicant members, and then the Baptismal Covenant for children, right? So you have a copy of each of those. And there's a handout that says Truth and Reality on it. All right, so as a basic outline... Membership requires you to publicly covenant with the first document, and you're taking each of those vows. Now, this is a solemn act, okay? When you make a vow, what you're doing is you're swearing in the sight of God and before the congregation that you believe certain things and that you intend to perform certain duties, and it's a swearing to God, and it's a promissory swearing for the duty parts. And so the idea that it's a vow to God is an oath. It's an oath to God. It involves duties you're swearing to perform. And so you're calling upon God to bless the performance and to curse the failure to perform. Now, that's what baptism means. And that's what the Lord's Supper means. Baptism is a covenant sign for entrance. And the Lord's Supper is a covenant sign for renewal. You're renewing the covenant. And so, whether you think you are or not, you are. And so, the thing is, these are external signs. And the external assenting with the voice to these oaths is not the same thing as having faith, the assent of the mind. And so justification is by assenting with the mind, and church membership is by assenting with the mouth. So that's what we're doing here. Now these oaths, they reference in the second oath, there's a referencing of the Shorter Catechism. And the Shorter Catechism we are using as the basic doctrine necessary for membership. Officers are required to have an explicit knowledge of, an explicit affirmation of, the Westminster Confession and the larger catechism and the directory of public worship. So there is additional truth. Now, we would say that these documents are coherent with each other, but the idea that there's more information that you learn and more implications. I'm Mr. Sorry, Jones. The officers have to know which three items? The Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, and the directory of public worship. Those are the adopted documents that we've got. Mr. Shaver. What What's that? What does know that mean? So you have to understand the content. Uh, you have to be willing to say that you have you understand them, and we're and there would be testing. 
Um, and so the, the idea of testing of officers is a public testing of the information and a public testing of qualifications, right? So the qualifications in First Timothy and Titus uh, are character qualifications, and that includes doctrine. And so the testing of the doctrine would be, okay, do they understand what these documents saying? Do they believe them? And um, so that's the, the idea. And then to be able to give, you know, a defense of things that you're pressed on in the testing process. And so knowledge is justified true belief. It's having a rational account. Okay, so, so what I want to do is I want to begin by uh, pointing out what I'm hoping to do today and then also what I'd like to uh, see happen next time. So this is the first of five membership classes. We're going to be looking through vows one to three, and we're going to be looking at the Westminster Shorter Catechism, questions one to 11. Next time, here's my request for you. I'm asking you to read through vow six and think about it. And I'm asking you to read questions 1 through 38 of the Shorter Catechism and think about it. We will be discussing through that next time. And so, in order to do that intelligently, the goal is to draw you out by your study, by your private study. And questions 1 through 38 are the doctrine of the gospel. Okay? 1 through 38 contains the gospel. And it's an excellent explanation of it, and it lays it out in a systematic way. Now, I'm not saying that if you don't know explicitly every single doctrine in questions 1 through 38 that you couldn't possibly be saved. What I'm saying is that this is an excellent summary of the gospel, and if you believed all the things there, you certainly would be saved. Okay, so let's look at Vow 1. It's uh, on the handout. It's also printed there. Vow 1. Do you believe all of the statements and necessary inferences of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the rationally coherent and infallible word of God, the very truth itself, and the only rule for faith in life? Now, when we talk about the statements and necessary inferences of the scripture, we're talking about those express statements, right? So there are sentences that are written, and they have meaning. The meaning of those sentences are propositions. Those propositions, do you believe that those are true, that those are the word of God? And then when you have those propositions and you put them together, you can, you can draw inferences from individual propositions. There, there are propositions that you can get out of them. Those are called immediate inferences. And there are also ways you can link verses together. You can link propositions together and you can draw new propositions out. Those are necessary inferences. Now, I'm not talking about anything you happen to associate it with. You go to a Bible study, what does this mean to you? Right? That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is the idea of there's a meaning to the text. And in addition to a meaning to the text, there are logically deduced propositions that necessarily must, by good and necessary process, be drawn out. To deny them is to not understand that it's a logical necessity. So that, that's what we talk about when we're saying there are, there are statements and then there are the necessary inferences of Scripture. Now the Old and New Testaments, we're talking about the 66 books of the Protestant Bible. Um, 
every statement and every inference that can be drawn from the text of those 66 books, that communicates the rationally coherent and infallible Word of God. Now, when we look at the Old and New Testaments, a part of what's important here in terms of seeing that the Old and New Testaments are both authoritative, the Old Testament is not the Word of God emeritus. The Old Testament is the Word of God. And so, when you read something in the Old Testament, unless you can prove that it's changed, unless you can prove that it's changed, you assume it continues. The burden when God says, do this, is on the person who says, don't do it. So, that's... Those are the sp- basic things in terms of this is, the do- this is the doctrine of authority for Puritan Reformed Church. And then below there it says, to be the rationally coherent and infallible word of God. So it's, it doesn't contradict itself. It fits together as a system. It's infallible, which means it not only is inerrant, it is not only without error, but it is impossible that it could err. It is infallible. It cannot fail. It cannot be false. It's the word of God. God makes things true by saying them. Now, God can't contradict himself. But if God says it, it's true. God makes things by saying it. The word of God is true. Now, the word of God is the truth. The word of God, the scriptures are not something that contains some truth in it. It's not a mixture. It is the truth. The word of God is not something that accords with the truth. The word of God is not something that points to the truth. The word of God is the truth. The marks on the page and the verbal expressions are signs. The word of God is the meaning. It's the proposition. So you can say it in English, or you can say it in Hebrew, or you can say it in Greek. But the meaning, the meaning is communicated with those symbols and the Holy Spirit illuminates the mind to understand and to believe. And there are rules of interpreting the symbols and the Bible shows us the rules for interpreting itself. The Bible is the only rule of faith. The Bible is the only rule for life. Here's what that means. If it's not a statement of the Bible if it's not necessarily implicit in the Bible, then nobody has the authority to make you believe it. It's the only rule of faith. And it's the only rule for life means that nobody, unless it's said in the Bible explicitly or necessarily implied by the Bible, then no one can tell you it's your duty to do it. So it's the rule of doctrine and it's the rule of practice. Now, I have some shorter catechism questions that are connected to this, and I'm going to intentionally stop for questions after I run through things associated with the first vow. But question one, shorter catechism. What's the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 
So chief end means the highest purpose, the best and highest use. Right? So man's best and highest use, man's highest purpose. The, the highest goal for man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So men glorify God whether they hate God or whether they love God. The highest use of man is to glorify God by loving him and therefore enjoying him. So the highest use, the best use of your life is to glorify God and to enjoy him. And so glorifying God involves, in that way, involves knowing him and showing him. And so you know God by what he has revealed and you show by profession and by action. And the actions ought to be those things that you can prove. That's providentially nicely timed sermon from Romans 12. So you get what I mean. Enjoying God forever. Glorify him in such a way as to enjoy him. Forever. If you enjoy him now, if you know him now, you will know him forever because he's inalienable. You can't lose the knowledge of God. It's everlasting life, not temporary life. Okay. Shorter Catechism question two. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to be directed, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. Okay, so the word of God. The express and necessary implicit contents of the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments includes all of the word available to man until the return of Christ. We have a complete canon. The explicit statements and the necessary inferences of scripture is the full revelation that God has given to man. Two, the only rule for the knowledge of man and the only rule for the duties of man. Again, no doctrine can be required of you unless it is in the scriptures explicitly or by necessary implication. No duty can be required of you unless it can be shown in the explicit commands of the scriptures, approved examples, or necessary inferences. Question three, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach what duty man is to believe concerning, sorry, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And so those are the, those are the main contents, right? The book is for that. And so what does it do? It focuses on what we're supposed to believe. In other words, it focuses on gospel, indicative statements, and duties, law, commands. And the Shorter Catechism is broken into the Gospel section, 1 through 38, and the Law sections, which you could say 39 through 81 is law, but really so is the last part because it teaches you how to use the Word of God and how to use the sacraments and how to pray. So it's an explanation, really, of the Second Commandment. How do you worship God? That's what the last section is about, 82 to 107. So let me pause there. This is the doctrine of knowledge that uh, is required, that you accept that the scriptures are true and that 
there is no obligation beyond the statements and implications, necessary implications, of the scripture. Mrs. Marsh. Would you mind commenting on um, glorify God and enjoying Him forever? Commenting on enjoying God and enjoying His creation. Yeah. So we enjoy if we enjoy the creation of God in such a way as to make it an end in itself, we have made it an idol. If we enjoy the creation in such a way as to rebound that into thanks to God and to use it in the way that he has appointed, then it is a way of glorifying God. And it draws out of us in the process, in that experience, it draws our attention. And so it causes us in meditation and in consideration of that to see things in the scriptures and to see implications we would otherwise not have. And so um, Augustine uses the analogy of a secret message on parchment that experience and the enjoyment of things that God has made um, that it's the experience is like fire that shows the invisible ink that the truths that God has given to us by implication are shown to our minds in that heat of experience that we are pushed to consider things we would otherwise not consider. So when you have a church conflict about church government, you think about church government more than you otherwise would have. When you have a conflict about um, you know, the duties of friends, you think about the definition of friendship more than you would otherwise. And when you are thinking about getting married, you, you think about the definition of marriage more than you did when you were 12. And, and so those would be kind of created things that we have place for in the law and we're drawn to think about them and uh, our attention and thought is drawn to them and we think about what the scriptures say about those things and reason from that. So does that touch on kind of that, what you're, what you're asking about? Yes, could you also give an example about just um, so you're talking about like the idolatrous form or doing it properly? Both? Okay. So um, our culture is, is filled with the sexual being viewed as sort of the end, right, or the goal. And so people think their identity is defined by their sexuality, and so they think sexual orientation is, you know, this piece of themselves. Uh, and then uh, there's this sort of desire to have self-creation, and so, like, I can make myself into whatever gender I want. And so sexuality is being viewed as like the enjoyment thing, the thing to be enjoyed, and the thing without which happy life cannot be obtained. And so there's a like idolatrous element, and we see that in Romans, right, where it talks about this idea that, that people give up the natural use of the woman, or, or women give up the men, and, and this idea of the disordering of the sexual. Uh, so that, that's very clear in our own culture right now. Whereas instead, if you have self-control, and you seek to have a lawful marriage that's prudent and then have the proper enjoyment and the biblical and beautiful enjoyment of sexuality in that context, there is this uh, rightness and propriety, right? Um, and so there the husband is seeking to deal with the wife in a way that honors her and fulfills desire in a lawful way. And the wife is also, and they're both viewing that as, you know, sexuality is the sign of the covenant of marriage and they're putting it in its proper place, 
and avoiding wrongful affections towards other people and avoiding wrong imaginings toward each other and seeking to uh, properly think in that way. So th those would be those would be examples of the two. Okay, great, thank you. Okay, Mr. Jones. Can you go over some examples of what necessary inferences look like? Yeah, that's great. So Jesus talks to uh, the Sadducees and they say, so Jesus, you think there's a resurrection. Silly boy. You know, there's a guy and he marries a woman and then this woman, he dies. And so they don't have any kids. The brother has to marry her. He dies. She has to marry the next brother. Right? So he's using the lever at marriage thing. They go through all this, and he's married six people or seven people, whatever the text says. And he goes, so whose wife is she in the resurrection? Nailed it. Mic drop. So Jesus' response is to say, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. And he takes then a verse that says, God is the God of the living and not of the dead. And he also says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the implication is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living and not dead. Because if he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then they are living. So Jesus uses that. That's, a, that's the syllogism that he uses. That's how he defeats the Pharisees. The Sadducees, sorry. So, like maybe I missed it. So what was a necessary inference that we're drawing out of there that Scripture doesn't say plainly, but it's an inference we have to draw out? Well, he's showing us how you can, you can take premise one, and you can take premise two, and you have the conclusion. And that conclusion was not in previous Scripture. Oh, so the Pharisees didn't enact proper inference. The, the, the Sadducees didn't. The Sadducees. didn't right. The Sadducees wrongly and he also teaches Jesus also says you know people aren't going to be given in marriage in uh, in the resurrected state they're going to be like the angels unmarried and they're not going to be increasing their progeny right so so the idea he, he explains that he explains that there is a resurrection and he shows that the prior text demonstrate the conclusion that Abraham Isaac and Jacob are living and not dead so that conclusion that Abraham Isaac and Jacob are living and not dead is an inference that he draws, and he's showing us how we can draw inferences. Gotcha. Is there another example of that, like, you yeah. can give, just to make clear it up? Yeah, happily. Sorry. Uh, is there so? Yeah, I wanted to correct you on, on that. Jesus doesn't, he does not give a verse that explicitly says God is a God of the living. He says it right then, but that's his conclusion from the verse that God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So he doesn't give like a proof text. Like he doesn't like. Can you? Can you what's, sure. the, what's the citation? Yeah, um, Matthew chapter twenty-two, um, verse verses twenty-nine through um, thirty-two. Matthew twenty-two. Okay, Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. Yeah. Okay. Um, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like, the angel, like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, 
the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Um, so the implication there is not stated by Christ. That's what you're saying. The implication is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. Yeah, yes. And then, forgive me, I thought what you said was that Jesus quoted, quoted the, 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 the scripture that says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then he also quoted uh, from somewhere in the Old Testament that said, God is not the God of the dead, or, but of the living. I thought that's what you said. I did say that. Okay. And that's what I was saying is not the case. Okay. So I think that there is text that says that, not in the exact wording. I'd have to find the citation. When I taught through Luke, I think I found the passage that's the one that would be taught. I can't remember the citation at this time. So I, I can go look at that. I can go look it up. But the, the point is, he is, the, the conclusion is not, this is not Jesus simply saying, uh-uh, right? Jesus, is, Jesus isn't just saying God is the God of the living and not of the dead. Yeah. And they're saying, well, but we're saying that they're dead. Right? He's, he's saying he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's saying he's the God of the living and not of the dead. And the implication, the inference is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. Yeah, I agree with that. But I, I'm saying it's not necessary for that second, um, for that second uh, uh, part of the syllogism to be explicitly stated in the, in the scriptures. And so I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I think Jesus is, is using both of um, the both of the, the, the major and the, the minor and the major uh, forgive me, um, parts of that of that uh, syllogism, the premises in that one verse. So God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. And therefore, he is the God of, he is the God of the living. No, yeah. maybe I'm wrong. No, I think I'm you're, I, actually, I'm sorry, forgive me. I think you're right, because I think the idea there is Abraham, he's not the God over Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who's possessed by them. That's what the of is. It's the of a yeah. possession. And so if they possess him, then they must be living. So there's a drawing out of an immediate inference. So it's either, there's either, there's either an immediate inference being drawn out of that one statement, or it's, there's a, a there's a conclusion that's not listed but it's obvious. So there's an example. Another famous example is in First uh, Corinthians chapter 15. Paul has a famous set of syllogisms. So a syllogism you have a major premise and a minor premise, and you have a conclusion that necessarily follows from those. In First Corinthians 15, you have what's called a sorites. A sorites is where you have argument one. Premise one, premise two, conclusion. And the next argument involves taking one of the premises and using the conclusion as one of the premises. So it's a series of reasonings. So Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, in arguing about the resurrection, does a series of arguments. 1 Corinthians 15 Okay, so I think it's starting at like verse 20. Uh, no, sorry. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, 
how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Right? So if major premise, nobody's raised from the dead, then Christ, who's a part of that category, is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty, right? The preaching is meaningless or vain because they're saying he's resurrected. And their faith, which is in what was preached, is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so he's using deconstructive analysis. So he's using critical analysis to say, okay, if this is true, then here's a bunch of conclusions you don't want. And then he's also, so he's showing the necessary inferences as a mechanism of tearing down a false view and showing the necessity of the other view. Gotcha. Okay. Mr. Knight. We could always give the most, like a very, very simple um, necessary inference. Um, so, uh, King David was a was a son of Jesse. The Bible explicitly says that. The Bible explicitly says also that Solomon was a son of David. A logical and necessary inference of that that the Bible doesn't say explicitly is Solomon is a grandson of Jesse. That is a truth that we can logically deduce from the scriptures. That is just as true as the explicit um, statements that. Of the, of the two premises there, uh, the two other, the, the two explicit statements. So, um, yeah, it's it's just as true, and uh, it's it's true by logical and necessary. And how? And I assume you check your necessary inferences that they're validated based off of scripture. Well, scripture provides the form; it shows us. So, logic is the way God thinks, right? God is the logos. And so we, and it's embedded in the structure of every sentence. And so all the reasoning throughout Scripture, all the valid forms are displayed in the Bible. And so there are valid forms of reasoning, and the valid forms of reasoning, there are immediate inferences, and then there are valid forms in syllogisms. And so syllogisms involve taking two propositions. Immediate inferences involve having a single proposition, and there are things that you can necessarily draw out of them. And so we can see those in the scripture, and um, they that's something that would require a long time to teach through, but I have a couple of really great books that talk about them. I did a logic class a few years ago um, that I have recordings of. And that makes sense. Okay. Um, great. Then anything else before we move on to 
bow to. Okay. Think of something later? Bring it up. Bow to. Oh, and by the way, in the footnote on page one, the laws of logic, the law of identity, the law of contradiction, the law of the excluded middle are laid out there. Those are um, the structure of, of thought. Think truth is not going to violate those laws. Uh, and there are also structures of thought in terms of the way propositions are formed. I don't have time to go through that today, uh, but that's something that is certainly worthy of study and would be very helpful uh, if you're desiring to be able to teach and to know more yourself. Okay, so vow two. So vow two is about the entry level faith and practice agreement that's required. Here's the rule that's necessary for entry. And then there's the rule in terms of office. And that's the other that's the set of standards we talked about before. So if you understand, so Vow 2 says this, do you believe that the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a faithful summary of the basic doctrines of the scripture? If you understand the Shorter Catechism and believe the content of it, then you have a faith that is uh, sufficient that you are a, a young man in the faith. And, and so the idea that you can be a man in Israel, you can be somebody who is, um, who is mature enough to be able to be relied upon for responsibility to some extent and that includes the examination of self to come to the Lord's table and so this is used as that kind of entry gate and um, the structure of the Shorter Catechism the first section questions 1 to 38 which again is the homework for next week is teaching you what man is to believe concerning God section 2 Questions 39 to 81 goes through the Ten Commandments and explains the law to give you a way of having the structure of thinking about your basic duties. And section 3 shows you how to apply the second commandment in terms of using the outward and ordinary means of grace to worship God properly and to grow in the knowledge of God. And so the Ten Commandments are a structure that helps you to be able to organize the law of God. You have the great commandment, love God, the second great commandment, love neighbor, and then the first four commandments teach you how to love God, the last six commandments teach you how to love neighbor, and then the last section, 82 to 107, word, sacraments, prayer, those are an embellishing of what the second commandment means, showing you the ceremonies, the outward things to be used for spiritual benefit now so the shorter catechism is something that is obviously much shorter than the bible and allows for an organization of basic doctrine to be able to say here are key things in the very beginning you're talking about the doctrine of authority of scripture and reason you're talking about the trinity you're talking about the definition of god you're talking about the incarnation you're talking about Adam and the fall and the covenant of works. You're talking about the covenant of grace. And Christ is his work as a redeemer, as prophet, priest, and king. You're talking about the states of humili- the state of humiliation of Christ, how he was humiliated, and how he was exalted. And you're talking about the golden chain of salvation. Right? That's the shorter catechism, questions 1 through 38. And so that's, that's the, the basic view of, of how reality works in Christianity. And the nature of salvation. 
So any comments, questions, objections about vow two? Mr. Jones? Question. You said that so the uh, the shorter catechism is broken up, and we said one through thirty-eight is the gospel. Yeah. Thirty-nine through eighty-one is the law. Yes. And then eighty-two through what? One hundred seven. And you called that. Uh, it's an expansion on the second commandment. Expansion of. The outward and ordinary means of grace. So by expansion of the second commandment, like the means by God by which God has given us to, like the principle means by which God has given us to worship Him. Right, so the second commandment says, um, you know, to not worship God by images, right? And what does that mean? Um, the second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. It forbids worshiping God by images or any other way not appointed in his word. Um, and so the idea is those are the main things that God has appointed for his worship, is the word, the sacraments, and prayer. So... I just found that a lot of my answers were on this outline. So oh. <laughs> helpful to see that. Good. Okay. I'm moving on to vow two. Unless, or sorry, vow three. Unless there's like anything else right now? Miss Marsh, it looks like maybe you have a question. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Yeah, so when you understand what the Bible teaches, the denial of it is absurd. So, for example, question four accurately communicates about God that God is, by definition, eternal. And to assert that God is not eternal is absurd. And to assert that something that's not God is eternal is absurd. And so you can demonstrate the absurdity of that. There are also attributes of truth that you can approach the idea of truth itself and the necessity of an eternal mind um, in order for there to you know, be truth. Um, right? So there are things, there are, there, are, there are defenses drawing out, but those are necessary implications. Okay, makes sense. So you're not necessarily approaching Scripture from the perspective of first let me prove it, and then I'll go to Scripture, read it, and draw the implications. You're saying look at Scripture, draw the implications, and one of those Right. So, so the idea of what is presuppositionalism? Is presuppositionalism starting with reason and arriving at the Bible? Or is presuppositionalism starting with the mind of God revealed and showing how the denial of it is absurd? And so I, I believe that the word of God is true and that what has been revealed of the word of God is available to us. And the we can show the denial of the word of God to be absurd. So, yeah. Um, okay, then, vow three. Vow three. This is about the definition of God and the doctrine of the Trinity. Do you believe that the one living and true God is a spirit who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, 
and that this one God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that these three persons are one God, the same in being, in agreement in all things, and equal in power and glory. Okay, so the assertion that the one living and true God is a spirit is the assertion that the one living and true God is by definition a spirit, a mind. So a spirit is a mind. Um, notice that we're not saying, do you believe that God exists? That's a meaningless statement. If I ask you, do you believe that this pulpit exists? That's a meaningless statement. The word exist is, means is or to be. Okay, So if I say, I am, right? You think about, okay, God says I am. He doesn't say I am. He says I am that I am. God asserts about himself the law of identity. And so the question is not, does God exist? Of course God exists. God exists in people's minds. The Muslim God exists in the mind. The question is, is he the true and living God? And so when you define God properly, the denial of him as what he is is absurd. If I say God is eternal, the, something has to be eternal. And so now that's a question about eternality and which thing is eternal. And you can examine that. But the question is not, is there a God? The question is, what is God? Is God a meaningless, self-contradictory term? Or is God an imaginary thing? Or is God the living and true God? And so if I say something is, it's meaningless. You cannot say, say David is, dot, 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 dot. David's what? Finish the sentence. Right? So this is, unless there's a predicate, it's meaningless. You have to have a subject, and then you link it with the, the verb to be, is, or be, am, or whatever, and you have a second part of that proposition. And that's the basic unit of thought, is the proposition. You cannot think terms by themselves. Whenever you think a term, you're thinking of a definition. So if you think God, it's either a meaningless sound, right? like if you, you know, speak Arabic and you hear the word God, you're probably not going to know what that means. It's going to be a sound without meaning. So you have to have a definition associated with it. And the definition is what you think when you think about the meaning of a term. So the basic unit of thought is a proposition. And so what we're dealing with is God is, and we have a definition. And this is the assertion. God is a mind. What kind of mind? A mind that's infinite in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. A mind that is eternal in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. A mind that is unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. You see how many propositions are contained there in this definition of God? We have three times, right? Because we're saying God is a spirit. And what kind of a spirit? He's the kind of spirit that's infinite in his being. That's one proposition. So, here are the propositions. Infinite, eternal, and unchangeable times being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. 
So that's seven. So there's 21 propositions. So that sentence has a list that communicates 21 propositions. So that's what we're saying about a definition of God. So think about how much longer that could be if you tried to make it more explicit or more drawn out. Yes? Wouldn't it be 22 since God is a spirit? Is You could, you could, you could separate that out as a, its own proposition. I know it says... Sure, you, you absolutely could. You, right. you can actually make that another proposition. That's right. right. But so, so there's an extra proposition, 22. So there's, there's, there's more that we could find by necessary inference. Start checking those against each other and see how they help you to draw new propositions. You start defining those terms. What does infinite mean? What does unchangeable mean? What's being? What's wisdom? What's power? What's holiness? Okay, so you start to unpack these things and you see how much information you've got in there. So we're saying God is this. And then we're saying that this God is three persons. And so now we're saying there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Father is a spirit, the Son is a spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a spirit. And so now we've got each of them is a spirit, and we've got the 21 assertions. So now we've got 22 times 3. So now we have 66 propositions. Now, we're also asserting that these three persons are one God. And it's probably pretty important that we start to figure out what these words mean because the attack on the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the principal assault points against Christianity. What do you mean God is three in one? That's a contradiction. It's not a contradiction because I said so. <laughs> so what does it mean? So these three persons are one God. Okay, well, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, and good, goodness, and truth. So that means the Father is a spirit, who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and is being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And same with the Son, and same with the Spirit. They share this definition. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. So we have one shared definition and we have three persons who share that definition. So then you go, doesn't that mean we have three gods? And the answer is no, because God is and we have a definition. And we're saying there's one shared godness by the three persons. And so you go, well, wait a second. But if there were three different minds that are all powerful, if they disagreed, then there would be like a rift in the time-space continuum, and this would be like a Star Trek episode. But, thankfully, since the Father is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom, and so is the Son, 
and so is the Spirit, they agree in all points and disagree at no points. There's a couple of propositions for you. And that makes it so that there is no conflict of omnipotent minds. But instead, there's perfect agreement by the omnipotent minds of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And remember, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are equal in power. They're equal in glory. And so we have this question of, okay, why does the Father get to order the Son around, and why do the Father and the Son get to order the Spirit around? And that's because we have this problem where we think if you can order somebody else around, it means you must be inferior in essence, persons ordered around. And so that's why we hate, that's why we hate the biblical order of the home. And so understanding that the father orders the son around by agreement, by covenant, there's a mutuality of agreement there, not a lowering of essence, that allows for that, and the same with the Spirit. And so that allows us to have a proper view of the state and the church and the household when it comes to authority, because we realize it's a law order and not about the metaphysic. It's not about the essence or nature of the thing being inferior. And so authority does not imply the superiority of the essence or nature of the one in authority. So we have these shorter catechism questions that relate to this, right? Question four is just right there, right? We've already walked through it. Are there more gods than one? There's but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance. Substance is the same as nature or essence. It means the same thing. Equal in power and glory. And glory, glory is the attributes. It's the essence. Equal in essence, equal in substance, equal in nature. Okay. What, are the degree, what are the decrees of God? So we look at the divine essence then. God's a mind, right? And minds think thoughts, have goals, and make choices. God's choices are called decrees. Okay, so what are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. Right. So there's the counsel of his will is the content. He has a purpose, and what's his purpose? It's to display his own glory. And he foreordains everything that comes to pass. He's choosing everything that comes to pass. So there's his content, his goal, his choice. The decrees are his choosing based upon his goal with all of his knowledge. The decrees are broken into, go to page four, subcategories of creation and providence. What's creation? Creation is God making all things of nothing by the word, word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. So making things of nothing. It happened for six days. God stopped creating after the sixth day. He took a Sabbath. He rested. And he blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then, question 11, what are the works of providence? God's works of providence, he continued on that day of rest, right? When you rest from one thing and you're a rational being, you can't avoid doing something else. And so what does he do? He transitions to providence. He transitions to governing. Now, obviously, he's governing the things he's making during the six days, too, right? 
but he's resting from one and picking up the other exclusively. And so the works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. So he's choosing what to make and then choosing what those things do. Now, special creation, man. Question 10. How did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. Okay, so mankind is the image of God. Mankind has two subcategories, male and female. Male and female are both the image of God. The image of God is rationality. The image of God is rationality. And rationality implies content, which when it's properly formed is knowledge. It implies purpose or goal, when properly formed that's holiness. And it implies righteousness, when, or it implies choice, which when properly formed is righteousness. So, comments, questions, objections relating to Valhari. Mr. Jones. Uh, yeah, quite a few questions on this one. Great. Um, the first is, so, one God and three persons. We pray to God the Father in the name of the Son. Does the Holy Spirit have any involvement in that? Yeah, so the Holy Spirit... Um, Outside of encouraging us to, you know, through us to pray, right? Sure. So the Holy Spirit um, teaches us how to pray. The Holy Spirit gives us faith to pray. The Holy Spirit prompts our conscience to pray. The Holy Spirit empowers us to pray aright. And the Holy Spirit um, brings about powerfully in history answers to prayer. And so the Holy Spirit is enormously important in prayer. And um, it's sort of like it's the prayer is coming from the Spirit in the name of the Son to the Father. Gotcha. Um, next, worship. We are to only worship God the Father. No, we, we are worshiping the Trinity. But the act of prayer, we worship the Trinity by having particular ways that the various members of the Trinity are involved in prayer. In prayer. But you said worship, we worship the Trinity. Yes. Awesome. Um, and this is a weird question. Do Are you supposed to have a certain relationship with each of the persons that make up God? So... The actions that are focused on um, by each of the members of the Trinity are things that we should acknowledge and praise the various members of the Trinity for and ask for in ways that are clear about it and talk about and think about that. Um, and so the more you understand the Trinity and the differences between the persons of the Trinity you have a deeper knowledge of God and there's a more glorifying of God in that, right? So you want to have a deepening knowledge and you want to approach properly. And so you know, you never approach the Father in the name of the Spirit, right? right? And so you're, 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 it's very important to understand the things that the members of the Trinity have done and that's... Um, 
There's a focus on Christ and that we're supposed to think about Christ as our mediator and what he does and what his offices are. And so how is he the prophet and the priest and the king? And there's a, the, the, by glorifying Christ um, as sort of a, a name that differentiates us from other people who claim to be theists, um, there is this effort that, the, that by glorifying Christ, the Father is glorified and the Spirit is glorified. And so there's this, there's this sort of emphasis on Christ in the new administration of the covenant of grace um, that I think you find all over the New Testament. Got it. And the Holy Spirit always existed. It, in, when Jesus ascended, that's when its involvement with us changed in he, thank you. And did he have involvement in the Old Testament? Yeah. Because like David said, your word was on my lips, your spirit was in me, and things like that. So it didn't necessarily come down, the Holy Spirit didn't come down at the ascension, it just changed how the spirit interacted with us. Is that correct? So, yeah, so you have um, the new covenant is promised, and the new covenant is not a discontinuous covenant. The new covenant is the same covenant with Abraham with a change of outward administration. And so the change of outward administration also comes along with promises of increased knowledge and increased power and increased extent of effect so that the whole world will be brought into the church. And so those are the changes of promise along with the change of administration. And so... Um, the Holy Spirit gives increased powers to believers so that every believer in the New Covenant is in a greater position than even John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was the greatest of men to that time. That's what Jesus says. Right? So, so this, there's an increase. It's the, the analogy that's frequently used in the Bible is the difference between a sprinkling versus a pouring. And then what you have is the progress of time up to this very broad river that passes through the city of God. Um, and so the idea of sprinkling to pouring to river is sort of the progress of, of, of the flow of the gifts and empowerment of the Spirit. And the ascension of Christ has Pentecost following after. And Pentecost in the beginning of Acts is a time where there's this great signs and wonders moment that shows the giving of these gifts to the new covenant church. Okay, great. Mrs. Marsh. Um, on the topic of praying to God the Father through the name of Christ, could you comment on when Stephen is stoned and traced directly to Jesus? Yeah, so my understanding when Stephen sees Jesus and, he, and he's stoned, that he is, he is talking to Jesus and he sees him. You know, it would not be inappropriate for people that were spending time with Jesus when he was on earth to speak to him directly. Um, and I don't think it was inappropriate for Stephen to talk to Jesus when he was seeing Jesus. And I, I don't, I would, I would not be able in faith to pray now to Jesus, not having a vision of Jesus or having his physical presence on the grounds of that that, that verse. So you see it not as praying to him, as just 
Yes. It'd be, it'd be a, yeah, it'd be like a supplication said to someone who's in your presence. Yeah. Which is different than, than prayer in, in a specific sense. Right. In the same way, you could ask me for something now, but if I died, it would be inappropriate for you to ask me for something. So. Okay. <laughs> Okay, and that's no denial of the divinity of God the Son. It's simply an assertion of this is the administrative order. Ms. Marsh. Yeah, so, so first, a part of the blessedness of God is the Trinity, right? God's never alone, right? So you may have heard people like, you know, God created because he was lonely. No, he wasn't. You know who's worse company than God the Son and God the Spirit? This guy, right? You too, right? So like, you know, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, perfect communion, perfect community, right? The, the blessedness. And one of the cool things about God glorifying himself is that in reality, when we're talking about the triune God glorifying the triune God, the Father is not so much glorifying himself as the Father is glorifying the Son, and the Father is glorifying the Spirit, and the Son is glorifying the Father and the Spirit, and the Spirit is glorifying the Son and the Father. And so the Trinitarian arrangement, the covenant of the Trinity, so the economics of the Trinity, the activities and functions, are designed for the purpose of outdoing each other in honoring each other, right? And so there's this glorifying of each other in the arrangement of the, Trinity, of the Trinitarian covenant. So the roles are about glorifying each other. So, Mr. Ryan? So if we, if we understand that the Godhead and functionally as the economic Trinity, could we, could we rightly say that So there is an intentional household language, and there's family type language, right? So um, the 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 arrange the household of God is a theme of the Bible, and the administration of the covenant of grace is called a household administration. It's a um, that's the word when you see dispensation. It's just a word that means household administration. So yes, I think that's appropriate. Um, and so yeah. So. God does not have a wife. Right. Son, right. But not yeah. Joshua. Uh, I was wondering about the outdoing each other part. I was. I, I was wondering how they would try to do that. Yeah. So the father. The son um, maximally 
glorifies the Father, and the Spirit maximally glorifies the Father, uh, and they each maximally glorify each other. So it's a race that's always got a tie. All right, so there's, there's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm using that language kind of glibly. I'm, you know, the, I'm taking a commandment to outdo each other and glor- in honoring each other and applying that there. But obviously they each perfectly glorify each other and in such a way that uh, it is, is maximized. And so uh, they don't, one does not actually beat the others. Good question. Okay. Mr. Jones? Uh, this is just kind of a general question that I've heard pushed back on before. Um, this being in- intertwined with the Westminster Shorter Catechism, I've heard other people say, well, you know, the Bible and the Shorter Catechism are not equals, and the Bible should be uplifted above it. But there's nothing in the Shorter Catechism that contradicts anything the Bible states. Rather, it's a, like you said before, kind of inform- it summarizes what the Bible states. Yeah, so if you find anything in the Bible that contradicts the Shorter Catechism, let me know. We'll repent publicly. Okay? Gotcha. So um, the Bible is the authority. The Shorter Catechism is a statement of faith. It's a, it's a statement about what we think the Bible says. And we have to make a commitment on that. The Bible, the Bible tells us to have one confession, one faith, and it tells us to have one rule of practice. So here's the effort to do that. The alternative is the pastors carry it around in their minds, and they have this like secret knowledge that they don't share with anybody else except when they're teaching, and then whenever they're contradicted on it, they try to like avoid responsibility for it. So this is a check on power, and you get to say publicly, you go, this says this, and you taught that, or you practiced this, and then you can vote to remove me from office by the majority vote of the heads of house. So that's the value of it. It's a lot shorter than reading the whole Bible to hold people accountable. So, yes. But the authority, like there is the that that, that tiered authority structure. The, the scriptures are a primary authority, and the, and the standards would be a secondary authority. Right, which is why I said if you can find something in the Bible that contradicts this, let me know. We'll publicly repent of it and we'll change it. So, yeah, I agree. Mrs. Marsh. Where does the Bible say have one rule of practice? Yeah, uh, good question. So, Philippians three. There's a few places, by the way. But Philippians 3. So the, the goal of the Reformed Church has been called covenanted uniformity. Uniformity of doctrine, worship, and government. Yeah, that's the goal of the, the Reformed Church historically. Uh, and the Westminster Assembly was organized for the purpose of bringing about covenanted uniformity. That was the goal for the British Isles, for Scotland, Ireland, Wales, and England. Um, so Philippians 3 16. thank you verse 16 nevertheless to the degree that we have already attained let us walk by the same rule let us be of the same mind okay so these the idea of having a a same doctrine and I think in the Greek it's even more clear but the same rule walking by the same rule is one but the yeah so to walk by the same rule and to be in agreement. So, good question. Okay, so anything else um, anybody would like to ask or challenge before we round out the class? Just last question. Yes? Um, so, this doesn't include everything. Would you say that this needs more added to it then? 
Yeah, so I think the, the larger catechism and I think the confession do a great job of adding things in the directory of worship. And so for the running of the church, that would certainly be insufficient. But for the admission of people to the table, it is a minimum of doctrine and practice that has to be agreed upon so in order to come to the table. So the more basic to less basic, this right. is kind of the more basic. Then you have those things, and then ultimately it's the entirety of the Bible, which is the most. Yes, and the goal of the church is to have our confessional and covenanted uniformity to contain what has been revealed in the scriptures. And that is the maturing of the church. So it's our duty to go beyond there. And it says something really bad about how the church is performed, that the last time we made significant advances was in the 1640s. So there's a need to organize churches and to have presbyteries and to work in those councils to advance and to make further progress in the unity of the <coughs> Okay, great. I appreciate your attention. Thank you all for considering membership. God bless you.